ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the, the ASIO Security Insider podcast. And I am here at the uh, ISC West Conference with Jake Parker, Senior Director of Government Relations at the Security Industry Association of America. Jake, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, Jake, you're, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, but you're primarily involved in biometrics, I believe. Well, so, um, so I lead our government relations efforts on behalf of the uh, Security Industry Association. So our job is to be the voice of the industry um, at, at both in Washington, D.C., but also state capitals uh, around the country on uh, all, all matters, policy matters that affect, um, that affect the industry. And so, you know, part of what we are doing is advocacy that helps uh, shape, uh, both educate lawmakers about our industry, what we do, and also shape, help shape those policies that will affect the deployment of security solutions. So what are the biggest trends and challenges you're seeing going on in the security industry here in the U.S. at the moment? You know, uh, a couple of things. I think, um, uh, you know, one, one you just mentioned on biometrics, uh, there's definitely, definitely been a lot of interest in, uh, we've seen around the country in legislating on biometrics, particularly the privacy of biometric data. Um, so that's something we're definitely, definitely watching. It's part of a larger um, debate over data privacy in general, which, um, you know, the United States, unlike Europe, doesn't have a national data privacy law, but that's something that could definitely happen in the next couple of years. Meanwhile, states are um, kind of taking matters into their own hands and into passing statewide data privacy laws. Um, so definitely a key element of those is how um, safety and security applications are treated as far as the information is processed uh, for those. And so um, that's something we've been you know, tracking really closely. Okay. And as far as the data privacy side of things is going, I mean, I imagine that's a growing and emerging concern across all areas. What sorts of things are you dealing with and how are you meeting that challenge? You know, so, so one, of, um, uh, one of the issues we're looking at right now, at right now is that uh, Ellen, the state of Illinois passed a biometric data privacy law back in 2008, which is really outdated and it's, been, it's had some unintended effects. So really, uh, the, you know, the, effect, the, in, the intent was to protect consumers, but unfortunately, uh, the way that, that law was, was crafted, it allows a... Uh, Private right of action for people basically to sue over you know minor violations of the of the um, of the law, and it's really led to a, a situation where there's an avalanche of these lawsuits against typically like small businesses, um, and th- which usually are forced to settle those cases. It becomes a sue and settle environment, yeah. and you know unfortunately the the some interest groups in the United States would like to see that law replicated in other states. So far, it hasn't been. Uh, but that's something we look, are looking at. Can you tell us a little bit about that law and, and how it works? Well, um, you know, it's, it's based on uh, the idea we see in other, a lot of other privacy laws as far as consent for, um, you know, for, for collecting and processing, you know, the data. And there's also some restrictions on selling the data. And, and you know, I think, you know, we, we agree it makes sense for, especially for, you know, voluntary con- commercial applications. It has to be consent-based. You know, with biometrics, that just makes sense. But there does need to be some exceptions for security uses, and so that's something that. Um, but you know, there's several other biometric data laws that follow a different model, such as Washington State and Texas that were passed since then, and they have an exception for security, security and anti-fraud purposes. So that's really the one of several of the objectives we have is to make sure that that protection is in place to allow our security solutions to function as they're intended. Okay, and and. What other significant challenges are you sort of having to educate government on at the moment? Well, certainly a, a hot button issue has been facial recognition. 
there's been a number of, of um, local governments that have banned the technology outright, um, which you know is unfortunate. We don't think that's a very responsible way to to address concerns about a technology to completely ban it. <laughs> um, but uh, there's there's been some uh, interest among at the state level um, in proposals at the federal level to do much the same, which we're quite concerned with. But we've been successful in. Um, educating lawmakers about some of the benefits of the technology. And I think the conversation has shifted a bit here, and I think what we're looking at now is what I would prefer to see is um, putting reasonable rules in place that provide reassurances. Because yeah. uh, most of the public concerns about this have to do with law enforcement and government use. I was going to say, on what grounds have they banned the use of facial recognition technology? Yeah, so that's, uh, that is based on, on really two, two things. One is the perception that the technology is far less accurate for some demographics and groups uh, than others. And unfortunately, that's based on some old or irrelevant information um, uh, out there <laughs> about the technology. I think that, that for, the, for the most part, the lawmakers we're talking to today understand that the, the, the recent advances in the technology have really addressed those issues in a, in a big way. Uh, if you look at the performance of the most recent uh, NIST testing, um, it's just uh, it's incredible the level of uh, accuracy technology has. And really, the, the demographic performance issue uh, is actually, I think, going to be cleared up even more once NIST expands their testing activities. Yeah. Uh, we were uh, urging Congress to provide more money for that testing program, which they just did this last week in their 22 appropriations, which is going to really expand and allow them to do more demographic based testing. But the other concern is the privacy concern about, um, you know, it, it, folks are in many cases, I think this is justified, you want to uh, make sure the government doesn't have the ability to misuse technology in ways that would affect, you know, civil rights. And that's that's the other, you know, main concern. But I think those can be addressed through um, basically guardrails uh, placed on government and law enforcement use of the technology. And that's, we're seeing some interest in that. Uh, one example is that the uh, there's been only two states that have actually banned law enforcement and only for law enforcement use, uh, Vermont and Virginia. Uh, that was Virginia was just last year, and some of the lawmakers there immediately recognized the public safety impact to do, from doing that and worked to reverse that ban and put in its place a set of um, rules that provide will provide the public reassurance that the technology is being used correctly um, and accurately not in a way that discriminates against people. And that was passed by the legislature um, earlier this month. And what sorts of rules are we talking about? So I think this, this, and again, I think this is applicable primarily to law enforcement, but um, you know, part of it is transparency. So uh, if an agency is using technology, they need to um, provide some kind of public reporting about the fact that they're using the technology, what they're using it for, and the extent of their use. Also, and this is really key, having an established use policy for um, that, that explains to both the both for the public but also for the personnel this is what we're using the technology for only this and not other things so primarily this is being used for after the fact criminal investigations uh, and it's also being used to help in public welfare situations like helping identify someone that is unable to identify themselves or a deceased person or crime victim things like yeah. that so I imagine with some of those bans that you were talking about earlier, though, they would extend to, uh, let's say I'm a shopping centre and I want to put in place facial recognition technology to recognise 
common offenders or frequent offenders so that security can then address them. Are they the kinds of things that were being banned under that rec- under that uh, legislation? Not in the case of, of Virginia that I just mentioned. So that was yep. only applicable to law enforcement. Now, there have been um, th- those. There has been. It, there's only two places in the United States where that sort of private sector use of facial recognition is prohibited. It's in uh, Portland, Oregon, and unfortunately, Baltimore, Maryland, near where I live. Yep. Um, so, it, it, we were heavily involved in the the. Um, debate over that, especially in, in, in Baltimore. Um, but um, it's, so in those cases, that, that would be prohibited except for, um, there's an exception for biometric security systems in that, which is not well defined, but does encompass presumably access control and some other types of security, uh, security yeah. uses. And so do you see that there's a need for, you were talking before about, you know, fair use or responsible use guidelines. Um, for some of the larger organisations like perhaps facility management groups, sporting stadiums, things like that that might be using facial recognition, do you see the need for that same fair use and, and ethical use policy? So I'm not, I'm not convinced that we need uh, legislation on those, you know, because that's an area where you know, technology is rapidly advancing. Uh, but there needs to be some common principles that are followed. Uh, and, and so one thing to know there, and I, by the way, I think that the, you know, um, screening applications for facial recognition is probably one of the most valuable from a security standpoint, you know, moving forward. And I think, unfortunately, all of the controversy about the, about the technology has slowed the adoption a bit um, yeah. of that. And, and so hopefully we can, we can, we can reverse that. But, um, you know, in those cases, the technology is being used to um, enhance a process that already occurs. So take, for example, um, uh, I guess, I guess like stadium, you know, security. There's, there are there are individuals who are um, have been involved in you know either criminal activity or something else that that are on some kind of list of security. Says these people are not allowed to, to enter. Right. Every stadium has a process where they people are on the list. There's, there's probably a way people can get off the list under the right circumstances. You know. Um, so instead of having somebody sit there with the photo. <laughs> A flip book of photos or something like that. Um, yeah. Security, at security, this would you know, automate something that they're already already doing, and that's really the case when you talk about school security applications as well. Um, also, even even um, you know non-security uses like uh, customer recognition programs, enhanced customer service, a way that you can you know check in early for you know, hotels and things like that. Um, you're just automating something that's already being done. So, so yeah. that so that that also means that those underlying processes have to, you know, have to work and have to be fair. Yeah, yeah. And so outside of biometrics, what are some of the other big governmental challenges you're dealing with here in the U.S. at the moment? Uh, well, certainly um, one of the things we're watching closely is the new, there's a lot of new funding that was provided for infrastructure projects um, under a bill that was passed last year. And I think a lot of that is going to trickle into um, security projects, both in the transportation sector uh, as a major, major beneficiary, uh, but there's some other ones as well. Um, so that's like it's, there's going to be double the funding for transit infrastructure, for example, that we've had before over the next five years. Yeah. So what percentage of the industry does the, the Security Industry Association here in the U.S. actually represent at the moment? That's a good question. I, I, I think you can probably judge it based on how many of, of the exhibitors at West at this conference are CM members, and I don't have the numbers 
on yeah. that. But I but I know it's I know it's more. Last last I checked, it was something like sixty percent or more. It's probably higher than that now. But we have eleven hundred members currently, and uh, like eight years ago when I started with the organization, it was like three hundred fifty. Yeah. And so do you find that you're getting good traction with the government uh, government relations side of things? Is the government actually listening to the, the advice that you're providing to them? Well, I think that, that it really helps to be able to, to speak with a unified voice, you know. And, um, you know, there, there is, you know, the thing that's different about our industry compared to others, you know, and there, of course every, all industries have their own uh, ways of lobbying the government. But in, in our case, not only are we, you know, contributing to the economy, right, but we're, we are actually protecting lives, protecting property, you know, there's a mission that our industry has that's a bit different than others, and so that's what I, I enjoy, uh, being able to articulate that, you know, to folks, and, you know, we've made a lot of um, uh, progress the last couple of years in getting involved in more policy discussions, both in D.C. and the, in the states, so I think we're, we've got much more recognition now than, than say, 10 years ago. Okay. And what kinds of things are you offering to your members as a, a, a part of being the, as part of the association? Yeah, so really it's, it's um, um, you know, a couple of things. We're, we're advocating on behalf of, of members, but what we're working on is typically brought to us by the members um, as far as, you know, they're out there seeing this, what policies are affecting them, you know, positively or negatively. They're, there's a feed, feedback loop that's running us through our various committees and you know, working groups. Um, and then a lot of times we're able to, to do some of these activities alongside them um, as far as meeting with lawmakers and things like that. But also it's uh, information and analysis about uh, policies that are emerging that um, uh, you know, may not be clear to everyone in the industry what the impact is. We're helping kind of interpret that. Uh, okay. And, and last question, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges that your members are bringing to you at the moment as an industry association and saying, we need help with this? You know, so, you know, outside of the, the stuff that I already, already covered, um, you know, one of the things is the, um, the infrastructure bill I mentioned. There's, the, the U.S. government is, is in the process of changing its, its uh, treatment of uh, procurement, domestic uh, domestic content requirements for procurement, and um, the way that, that that law basically changes some of the rules and says that everything that's infrastructure the federal government funds has to meet a new standard, and that is causing a bit of concern where, especially for electronic security products, um, you know, some of them are made in the U.S., but certainly but with the global supply chains we have in electronics, not all the components are made in the U.S., and that's, a, you know, that those new rules may carry with them a requirement that for U.S. manufacturing, and also components have to be made in the U.S., which for electronics is pretty unworkable, and also for um, other ICT-type products, telecommunications and, and communications equipment. So um, that's one thing that we're working on to get some clarity on those rules. So that's definitely something we're hearing about right now is nobody knows exactly how those requirements are going to be implemented and if they're going to replace the process we already have and the rules we already have around domestic product content. So. Yeah, okay. especially companies that are that are um, have a significant U.S. footprint that might be based in other countries, you know, and have their manufacturing in you know other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, well, I can imagine that would be a significant challenge. Jake, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the Asia Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry. 
the Google Play Store and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day.